Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. And uh, today, to get off of the whole, well, war situation, an amazing guest that has actually helped me survive a bomb shelter in uh, Odessa. Yeah, and a person that I listen to a lot, because technically, I guess I count besides a journalist as a science educator as well, except that my science sphere is not the one that usually is associated with such people, but hey... We here have John Michael Gaudier, a uh, science fiction author and person who says live with the best accent on possible on planet Earth, and uh, a person that I enjoy listening to quite a lot, and we're going to talk about Soviet futurism a bit, and compare and contrast to the US USA. Oh, I'm sorry, I cannot pronounce this filthy capitalist name. <laughs> but yeah, we're having Event Horizon on our show, although, well, Soviet Union is one massive Event Horizon if you think about it. Before we get to that, I'd like to say that all of the proceeds for today's episode go to the people of Zhitomir, and it's because we don't do STEM episodes that much here on the show. When we do, we have to do a charitable goal, and this is going to Zhitomir, which got bombed in the war. It was also the birthplace of one of my personal heroes, Sergei Korolev, a Ukrainian guy whom you might have heard of because he invented the, well, Soviet space program in general. But greetings, John, and... Uh, Welcome to the Eastern Border, comrade. We have milk and cookies, and don't you remove that tight helmet from your head. Yes, coming to you from the capitalist side of the border uh, with Illinois. I wish I knew where that was. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello, listeners, and uh, my name is John Michael Godier, as mentioned, as advertised, and um, I am a filthy YouTube capitalist. <laughs> You're always amazing. I wanted to get some of you on the show in general, and thanks for you here because you've been a huge help. The hardest part was to figure out how can we tie these things together. And one thing that I noticed is that I was listening to a show recently about you know all these alien life things, and I think it was one of the recent episodes which you made not on the Event Horizon but your own channel about Enceladus and the NASA mission to it. And back in the day in the USSR, we didn't think about Enceladus. We thought about Mars and life on Mars, because you might not know this, but uh, in the 60s and 70s, there was a huge lecture cycle going on, and it was everywhere. And everyone in the USSR was just interested about, is there life on Mars? Seriously. And we also sent messages, radio messages before the Veneta landers to v Venus, 
which just basically stated Lenin is great. No, seriously, it was just all about Lenin. And I wanted to talk to you about um, how did futurism turn out uh, for, for the US? I mean, uh, we can look back right now on how the Soviets viewed the, the year 2000, which obviously turned out to be the glorious communist paradise for everyone, as we can clearly see today, and compare it to, well, Western science fiction and everything. How did you guys think about the year 2000? Well, we overthought it um, in the United States. The reality of futurism is that, in science fiction, is that the people that were the most right were British, and that would be people like Arthur C. Clarke. And um, over here, we tended to do the opposite of the Soviets. We saw, you know, a sort of bright future of Star Trek, you know, going into space and solving the world's problems, finding world peace, everybody going into space as the human species instead of nation states. And obviously, this was grossly off base, given current events in Ukraine. So we tended towards a positivist view of the future. But that really didn't happen because, honestly, the world really didn't go in that direction. It didn't change that much after the fall of the Soviet Union. Well, the USSR also went in the positivist direction. Also, one thing, Star Trek is totally alien to me. I haven't seen a single episode of Star Trek. We got some Star Trek, but no one watched it because it was portrayed here as literally in the late 80s as communist propaganda. Seriously, they literally sold it to us the way that, look at this, Star Trek portrays a glorious uh, glorious version of the future where socialists and communists have taken over everyone. Well, that's actually uh, acknowledged in Star Trek. Um, in Deep Space Nine, they mention neo-communists. Yeah, yeah but, but you, you understand how this looks like to everyone in the Soviet Union oh, yeah. who's oppressed by it, right? Yeah, no, it was, it was absolutely, uh, it, was, it was entirely for an American audience. Um, and it was designed to get us to think differently. A lot of people had a problem with that, of course, you know, because it, it was not a very capitalist show, despite it making a ton of money. One thing, though, is that, um, for example, I've mentioned this on one of my previous episodes, but we saw Star Wars in 1970. I don't know when it came out, but over here, it was portrayed as the empire symbolizing the United States of America and the force being an obvious allegory for Marxism. And Luke being the proletarian hero who takes down the evil capitalist empire, which turned a lot of people here into fans of Darth Vader and the empire since we were living in the Soviet Union. So if you if you look here in the eastern border, you'll find a lot of Star Wars fans who are all for Darth Vader and the empire because Luke is a filthy, filthy socialist who wants to take away our cow. <laughs> That's amazing. With the view of science fiction and in the US, I don't know that we got any Soviet content as far as science fiction goes. I think I think it was a two-way street. We didn't get that. Now, what we did get was the science. Mm. And we got certain things like, for example, the papers of Nikolai Kardashev. You know, the, there was some interchange between the academics. And in that sense, thinking about alien life and SETI, there was uh, a dialogue between the US and the Soviet Union. And um, unfortunately, this is breaking down right now with in modern times there was a dialogue about a lot of things and, and kadashev was interesting with this but um it took a huge kind of effort for the switch to move away from this since well for one uh, in the stalinist era they literally called uh, cybernetics a false science because see for the soviets it was all based in ideology in the sense that uh, scientific marxism had to be objectively true 
you know, you take a political philosophy, you take some sort of a worldview, and then you treat it as if it was physics or maths, right? So for the Soviets, they really had to kind of adjust things. Therefore, cybernetics, which is all about, you know, controlling the systems, or even genetics, because they, they were uh, going with a very kind of um, theory, that was, which was all about cooperation and socialistic. Everyone, every every objective truth in science had to be socialist for a while, which is also the reason why in the Soviet era, a lot of people thought that if you would meet a sufficiently advanced civilization in space, they would definitely be socialists, totally communists. They would basically have their own version of Mars, Marx, sorry. So it's kind of this weird thing where in the Soviet Union, they had a lot of scientific achievements, but they were individual people who did them. And in the whole system, for example, I remember that I, I was studying and was reading a lot of translations of historical works like Plato and Cicero for my history classes in, in university. And, you know, they don't get translated in Latvian often, so we had to use Soviet translations for them. And every scientific work, every work that was translated into Latvian had the beginning section that would explain why this totally adheres to the to the Marxist ideology and why is this important for socialism all the time. And I'm pretty sure that you you didn't get that in the West. You, you really didn't have to have to explain how is this related to the capitalist worldview. No, they well yeah, we didn't. You can't you still can't control speech and people get really touchy if you start injecting politics into certain things which is one of the reasons why you never hear me say anything political on YouTube is because I'll immediately slice my English speaking audience in half if I do. And that's, that's just the reality of it. Plus my philosophy is that I'm a science fiction author. So escapism is what I provide. And as soon as you say something that's political, the escapism goes away. You're no longer distracting people. You're, you're getting them to think politically and that's not, not what you want. So our, our view of it was you legally cannot restrict free speech you can do it through you know social means of course people do that cancel cultures and things like that but you can't do it officially so we never had any of that but that said you know there was a at that time up until the the time gorbachev gained power up until that time there was sort of this icy view of the soviet union that you know we were sitting here with with our fingers on our triggers on our nuclear triggers and then that changed gorbachev started opening it up and there was, you know, more interaction and everything sort of thawed. But then there was the uncertainty of uh, 1989 and onward that ultimately led to the fall of the Soviet Union. It started to end. And then that's when we started cooperating, you know, really cooperating. We had done joint things in space before with the Soviets, but now it was time for the International Space Station, which now seems to unfortunately be ending. And things like that, where it was a sort of a cooperative effort. Unfortunately, this had the effect of dropping funding because without a Cold War and a space race and everything going cooperative, then, yeah, you know, not as much money goes into the uh, effort. Now, I don't know how that worked on the Soviet side or, or Russian side, but here it, it, you know. I can tell you, here it, money didn't matter because money was more or less imaginary. I mean, people up there in the higher ranks controlled everything anyways. It was a planned economy, which meant that whatever party said the money went, well, it went there. And that's why Gagarin was the first to go to space, because he was from a proletarian background, he was ethnically Russian, he was carefully selected to be the perfect Soviet citizen to fly into space. 
he flew there as the first man in space, not to undermine his heroics, because he really was a great man, And but that's the thing. This is the reason why the Soviet achievements, even though Latvia and all the Baltics were also in the Soviet Union, and a lot of people were tied to the Soviet Union, you want to hear us say, oh, we got the first man into space. No, it was, it was Russia, because they selectively controlled all this situation, and it was all weird. The weirdest part was that um, recently, a couple of months ago, I, I guess, it was like January or something, they unearthed a time capsule in Russia, and it stated that, uh, hey, we greet you people in the future who are all now living in socialism, those who do not know war and aging and sickness anymore. And then all of us in the Eastern Bloc, we just looked at this message and we went like, we wish. Right now, it's interesting to look at, you know, how in 2015 people looked at the hoverboards and everything, but for us at this point, year 2000, for example, was the year where we would achieve communism, where we would go to space, and uh, according to Soviet messages, and I quote here, <clears throat> every library in every village would have a uh, calculating machine, electronic one. In the larger cities, maybe every section would have a calculating machine, an ESM. So... That, that's a bit weird if you look at it these days. Well, if you think about it, I mean, um, that actually sort of happened here because early computer access, if you want to call a computer a calculating machine, early computer access in the U.S. was through libraries, public libraries. So we actually ended up having that for a time. You know, if you didn't, you know, at the time, computers were rare and expensive in the 90s. But if you wanted to use one, you went to the library. I think the Soviets kind of made their mistake there with the computer thing in general, since cybernetics weren't a field where the Soviets really wanted to focus on. Like, they wanted to go through more analog means with everything. You know, if you look at the Russian hackers today and everything, then you wouldn't think this, but the USSR really didn't see computing and computers as a general kind of future that only happened under uh, under Gorbachev in the very late Soviet Union where where basically the leaders understood that uh, you know computers would be a thing which kind of makes me think you know to get this more in line with your show you speak a lot about you know the Fermi paradox and and here we on my show we can talk about a bit of political stuff we're not going to touch united states politics i'm sorry that's off topic but uh, in general if you think about the possible political systems what if one of the reasons is that if Soviet Union could exist for such a long time without thinking that computers were a necessary thing and that analog stuff would be important, would it be possible that just, I don't know, some alien civilization just decides that, hey, we like all this stuff, but radio? No, let's just not use radio or computers and just never use it. Just They just don't use some technology that, that might make them known or something. Well, it's going to be about... A, a very, very large lion's share of technology because much of our technology wouldn't be universal. For example, these microphones that we're speaking into would not be of much use to an alien civilization that doesn't speak, you know, or doesn't uh, communicate in the vocal way. Same with our computer monitors. We're looking at them with eyes, but that would assume that if aliens had an analog of it, that they would have eyes. They may not, you know. Um, so you can't really project a universality on all technology that we use because it's very tailored towards being um, homo sapiens. However, there are some that you can, and you can project that any alien civilization that goes to space and is spacefaring, you know, has to have computing technology, some means of leaving their planet, whether it's a rocket, 
or if it's a mass driver or something like that. So there are things that you can project that a technological alien civilization would have. And that's really the basis of SETI is that we're assuming that, you know, if they have technology, they're going to use the electromagnetic spectrum because it's inherent to the universe itself. It's, you know, it's everything about it. They would have radio telescopes because there's no other way to intercept that signal, you know. So if, they're, if they know about radio and they're scientific, they're going to make a radio telescope and it's probably going to look exactly like ours because that design is the only way you can do it. So there's really two ways to look at it. And when you evaluate technology and ask if aliens would have it, you have to ask, well, how human is this? How anthropocentric is this piece of technology? And you find most technologies serve humans, therefore um, aliens might not have them. But there is a handful that are universal. And another example of this to go into the future would be artificial intelligence. Everyone probably hits that. That's technological. Now, of course, there are civilizations that are going to choose not, as you say, not to pursue these technologies, but they're not going to space if they do, and they probably would not be easily detected, so we would never know about them. I can guess at the point with the radio telescopes. However, like everyone, everyone just keeps talking about, in this case, in my Soviet, Soviet era history case, everyone keeps talking about space Jesus, and everyone keeps wondering about how the religion react to aliens. Meanwhile, like you mentioned in a lot of your episodes, we've been living with aliens since, I don't know, uh, 17th century. No, seriously, culturally, we have. Uh, dear listeners, go check out John's show since we have... Um, there was a prize issued for first person to communicate with aliens on other planets, and Mars was excluded because it was apparently thought by the lady who started this call competition that Mars aliens on Mars would be just too easy to communicate with, so she didn't put them in. So we've been living with aliens for a lot forever. And this is one of the specifics of the Soviet methodology here, because they actually spent a lot of time and a lot of resources in figuring out what if the aliens weren't socialist enough? How do we turn aliens socialist? They even had a political joke about the um, whole issue. And, and you, you like this, John. It was like, Armenian radio or Radio Yerevan gets asked, is there life on Mars? Radio Yerevan answers, we don't know for sure. But once we arrive there and install communism, no life shall remain. Yeah. And one thing I wonder about, too, is, all right, again, we get into human biases because both communism and capitalism are human systems, right? Designed to serve humans, ostensibly. <laughs> ostensibly is the right word here, I suppose. <laughs> ostensibly is the right word because no, nothing is perfect, you know, nothing is perfect. Well, what happens if the aliens came up with a hybrid that is perfect? See, the thing is that uh, a lot of things about aliens in general, this is what really makes me kind of interested, because in the Soviet, they also had alien stories. And your show mentioned that a lot of UFO sightings come from the USA, even though the USSR had a lot of them. They were just top secret. It's a bias. Um, and that bias is sort of changing. The reason that the sightings of the UAP were skewed mostly towards Americans is because we were listening. Oh, yes. The UAP is the new word. Yeah, the new word. Well, we don't know if it's a new word or not. What, what we would say is it's a government word. That's what they call them. And there, I've seen some documents that show that they've called them that for a long time um, because it's, it's more descriptive. Unidentified aerial phenomenon as opposed to unidentified flying object sounds better and more professional. Uh, but the uh, UFOs, UAP, whatever you want to call them, 
um, there was just a selection bias because we weren't we didn't know about the Soviet sightings of these things. Um, and the same with China now. Um, China maintains a rather substantial program looking into these things uh, that we didn't know about until recently, until it was reported in, in you know some approved media outlets that they've been looking into as well for a very long time. China sees them. And that's disconcerting because I don't think these things are of alien origin. I'll be completely honest. I, they don't seem to behave like I would expect an alien civilization to behave. They, they seem erratic and irrational, you know, zipping around everywhere and violating the laws of physics and things like that. But I don't know what they are. They're unidentified. I don't know. But if one of these things is zipping around in the South China Sea where you have rival navies in close proximity, that could be misinterpreted and start a shooting war. As a result, we need to know what these things are and if they pose some sort of aviation threat. And we need both sides, you know, and everybody that's involved to know that these things are there so that we don't mistake them for, um, you know, something worse. And that, that brings up another Cold War era issue is false sightings of ballistic missiles, which happened, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, two months ago, we would be speaking about starting a shooting war with... Uh you know, a bit of a laughter or something, but right now, well, we have a shooting war, which is, and, and one side of it, Russian side, is now portraying it as a blatant war against the West, for one, because, uh, yeah, it happens. So all these things are weird. Kind of like the same idea, but the ballistic missiles, when, um, you know, there was this movie, The Man That Saved the World, and he wasn't very well known until the 90s. Uh, the guy who was um, in the Soviet uh, missile base which basically refused the command to shoot nukes in the United States because because of a blimp on the radar. It's the same thing on this side. There was, a, a, well, one that pops into my mind happened at RAF Filingdale, um, which is a, a British installation where they detected a missile that wasn't there. It happened in Swedish airspace, as I recall. It happened quite a lot, but they were able to work out that this wasn't really a ballistic missile, you know? And I think that was probably mainly because it was only one, <laughs> you know, if you see hundreds of them, which is what the, the fear was, that's one thing. But if you just see one, it's, it's weird. You know, it's, it's like, why did they lose control of something, you know, but then you find out it was, it was a, a ghost in your radar. And that happens a lot. Radar can be really touchy, especially in those days and show you things that aren't there. You know, the thing is that when, when it comes to UFOs, I've had a weird personal experience with them. Because I've seen a thing that I don't know how to explain, really. It was a bizarro, bizarro episode in my life. I was a kid back then, but, you know, I was in my countryside home, and uh, basically the sky just turned orange in the middle of the night, like completely orange. And it wasn't one of those green rays, because I've, I've tried to find an explanation for this. I just know what, I, I don't know what it was. Just the sky turned orange and something was in the sky. And like everything turned orange. Just was a bizarre experience on my own. But the Soviets really took these things very seriously. Because, uh, as weird as it may seem, the Soviet Union took psychics seriously as well. They, they had something like an Area 51, except it wasn't a volcano. <laughs> and when people... <laughs> no, seriously. I love it. <laughs> when, people, when people speak about Dyatlov Pass, which is probably the most known, um, known thing, yep. the very idea that KGB was testing a secret weapon, yeah, that's quite probably real, because they didn't tell us anything. It's hard for Americans to imagine the information secrecy that we lived under. And then at the same time, you know, we don't know anything that's happening in our own country, yet we get all these messages about 
how great we're gonna live in the future. And another Soviet joke is the fact that uh, Radio Yerevan gets asked, will there be KGB under communism? Radio Yerevan answers, no. By that point, people will have learned to arrest themselves. Well, that's that. the thing is, is that our secrecy culture was very different. It was always buried under top secret, you know, in Area 51 and things like that. But you mentioned that you saw a strange sighting. Now, I have to caveat something here. I have seen a UFO, and I, to this day, have no idea what it was. And after spending 30 years or over 30 years under the night sky as an amateur astronomer, I'd never seen anything up until that point, which only happened about seven months ago. And then I saw something that I couldn't ex- explain. All of a sudden, I'm like, you know, there's nothing to this UFO stuff. They, they don't exist. I'd have seen one by now because I'm always under the stars. But then there it was. And I have no explanation for it. But I can tell you one thing. I don't think it was behaving like an alien spacecraft would behave. I think it was behaving like some weird atmospheric plasma phenomenon that we don't know about. And that's what I suspect here that the Galileo project is probably going to find that there, things happen naturally in our atmosphere that we're not aware of yet. But to get back us up on the subject matter, whatever that is, I suppose we're just smashing Soviet science assumptions together or something. One thing that really is lost these days with modern day Russia are actually the Soviet scientists, because for one reason or another, the Russians today are you know, putting back up a lot of censorship on the scientists and uh, if you look at the Nobel Prize laureates since the year 1990 and since Putin came to power, there are more Russians who've gotten the Nobel Prize in anything, really, who are now citizens of the United States or other countries rather than from Russia. And there's been a massive brain drain, which is really hurting hurting everyone around in these parts, especially Russia. I was talking about how, you know, the, the real warfare, of course, is hurting, hurting people. But if you think about this, you know, it, it just really pains me to see that all these people that I would, you know, because I was born in the Soviet Union, I, I would call them my comrades and my countrymen, and and now they've just moved abroad too. And this is what this is what really, this is what politics does to science. I think. Yeah, this is why we really should keep them separate. Man, it's worth noting too that Russian science was and still is extremely important in a certain area, which is material science, um, synthesizing new elements. Russia has ruled the periodic table. Which was, you know, a Russian invented that, you know. Mendeleev. Mendeleev, yes. Things you didn't know about Mendeleev. This is the fun anecdote about him. He got the, at this point, the Tsarist Medal for Scientific Excellence. But he didn't get it for inventing the periodic table. No. He got it because he, together with a baron of some sorts of Russian nobility, perfected the vodka. He, he invented also the 40% vodka. He basically discovered the fact that... Um, 40% is the optimum alcohol content, and he discovered it in, quote, <clears throat> months-long experimentation period, together with Baron so-and-so, for which he got the award. <laughs> now, isn't there actually a vodka brand in Russia called Mendeleev? Well, I'm not sure about that. What can I tell you, though, is that uh, Stolichnaya, if you ever drank Stoli, yes. That's not Russian vodka, that's Latvian vodka. I know, it's because I, st- I see it on, I still see it on the shelves here, <laughs> um, which Russian products obviously are sanctioned. Um, so I still see Stolichnaya. There's another uh, vodka called Kor, which I believe is Ukrainian that we still see, um, but Russian products now. If it's Ukrainian, it's not vodka, it's called Kharilka. Well, we wouldn't know that over here. <laughs> oh, I know. That's why you should listen to my show, comrade. <laughs> then you will know. But uh, the thing is that 
a lot of people really mistake all the situation because one thing that really pissed us off in the Soviet Union is the fact that you you called all of us Russian. Well, some of us. I, I knew that, I mean, I, I would never call a Kazakh or a, you know, a uh, Estonian Russian. <laughs> well, you, you were lucky in this this part, but that was kind of weird. Well, it, people people used a euphemism. Um, the Russians meant the Soviet Union. And the, the, I think it was probably some confusion about that because we knew it was a union of states that all spoke different languages. And then there was the Eastern Bloc, of course, you know, which is, you know, under the Soviet sphere of influence, which was half of Europe. But talking about the, the sci-fi stuff, and, and you're a sci-fi author, one thing for sure is that um, currently a very popular series is the Stalker series. Video games and now they're making Stalker 2. And Brother Strugatsky, praise be to them, uh, they were the first dystopian authors in the Soviet Union. Because only after Perestroika, you could actually start writing these dystopian things. Because I was growing up on, um, I was growing up on Harry Harrison, I was growing up on, uh, on Asimov, all these kind of very positivist United States authors, because they were the only authors getting translated. And then Perestroika hit. And then we got the first dystopia thing. And it was kind of a counterculture thing as well, because they didn't portray the Soviet Union in a very positive light. Meanwhile, at the same time, the modern-day Russian science fiction authors, like uh, the guy who wrote The Night's Watch, yeah, he's, he's gone into full authoritarian mode. It's kind of, kind of weird, because in Soviet Union, science fiction was the official genre of literature. And they used it for propaganda reasons a lot, because it was fully materialistic, because the Soviet Union denied existence of anything paranormal whatsoever. For them... Aliens were communists and they were fully scientific, which is kind of an interesting thing because in the United States you think about aliens as being uh, some kooky idea, the UFOs and UAPs, sorry, and everything. But Soviet Union took them seriously. This makes me think that, you know, how much do we filter our current political situation through these lenses of sci-fi and how much we portray this and how much does this fall into the real science sphere? Because currently, currently today, just today, Mr. Putin declared that this decade will be the decade of science for Russia. And on the very same day, Russia granted its first patent to a perpetuum mobile. So I don't even know what's going on there. It's just that uh, I'm just seeing these cultural lenses everywhere. It's getting harder and harder to keep your, your, your thumb on the wrist of Russia right now. Because, you, you know, it's obviously engaged in a war and there's a lot of propaganda you know and, and things Putin's saying now is is very different from the old Putin you know and things he used to say so it's hard to really know what's really going on and with it being isolated it's going to get worse you know and I worry that this is going to you know create a problem um going out into space because I want us all to go to you know space I want the entire world to be engaged in um space exploration and it's unhelpful, you know, it's unhelpful when, when you can't have the United States and Russia working together, you know, and that's a, that's a tragedy for me. I mean, we need the International Space Station with our Russian colleagues and everybody else that's involved, you know, to uh, give us something global to look at, you know, something to look forward to. Roscosmos used to be great. Oh, yeah. Roscosmos really, really used to be great because... Uh... I've heard a lot of people, and this this is what I hear a lot on my show, is the fact that uh, you know, I, I tend to banter with people about the metric system a lot, and then they tell me, oh, but we landed on the moon. And then I have to remind them, yeah, you did this using metric. 
Well, I have to plead the fifth here because I use both systems. Um, I if there nothing beats a millimeter if you're measuring something small. Um, the, the imperial system just does not as good as as the metric system. But I also think that on long distances, I actually prefer miles over kilometers. I can't think in miles. I I can't really I can't really put my head around it. You're culturally, you probably never had them. I think they were originally British, <laughs> and we inherited them. You call it the imperial system. Where I come from, we had a different empire and a different measurement system. In fact, in the Baltics, we've had about, oh, what, six, seven different empires ruling over us? Because each empire had its own system before this. Right. And I, well, you can look at how currency works. Not everybody worked on a decimal system. Spain worked on eight, you know, ocho reales. You know, they, they, they actually worked on a system of, of eights. And... um Weirdly, that system actually persisted in my lifetime up until probably the 90s in the stock market in New York, where it was still an eighth. And that was a relic of that those days of Spain's influence on the new world. But the thing is, is that systems of measurement, I, we probably need to settle on metric because that's the most widely used one globally. But you're also, you know, getting people to switch is is... <laughs> the real trick, especially when they don't have to. They always ask the very same question. I mean, uh, one cubic centimeter of water is uh, one milliliter, and it also weighs one gram, and it takes one calorie to heat it up by one degree Celsius. And, you know, there's uh, 1,000 of them in a liter. So how many cubic inches of water are there in a gallon? Oh, who knows? <laughs> um, I, I, and, well, the, the thing is, you know what I think really poisons it? Um, as far as the adoption of the metric system in the U.S. is cooking, because 454 grams of chicken is cumbersome as opposed to just saying a pound. And so I think that system sort of perpetuates. Get rid of the pound kilograms. I've done some cooking in, in the U.S. and you know what ruined it for me? You have measurements in spoons and, and like cups. And, and, mm-hmm. and you know what's the worst part? I found out that European cup is 200 milliliters. United States cup is 250 milliliters. Yep. And it, the, the strange thing is, is that that system, it only applies to certain things because it will switch on a dime to metric. And one example of this is drugs, drugs uh, like cocaine or something like that. Always measured in metric here. Always. You buy a gram, you buy a, you know, a kilogram, well, a kilogram would really get you in trouble, but Oh, man, a kilogram of weed. <laughs> that one goes in ounces. <laughs> um, uh, grams, I think, might be taken over there. I don't know. That That's a very fluid thing here. Um, <laughs> in one sense, I kind of kind of am worried today about this whole situation because the Soviet Union presented itself as this bright and shiny thing, and we didn't worry about ourselves in metric system. And one thing the Soviet Union really had, and this hope is now lost, the fact that... Um, as terrible as the Soviet system might be, the system itself portrayed as always having the knowledge that we will beat the filthy capitalists. Always. And I think that maybe you can explain today's Russia with the sense that this message is now gone, because it is illogical. You, you, can't, you can't just leapfrog and get to the United States or, or, or China even, or something like that. For us, in the Eastern Bloc, the very idea that we'll go to space and introduce socialism. We will socialist the fuck out of everyone, basically. Yes, you can swear on this show. Um, <laughs> the, this idea was motivating a lot of people. 
I don't know. Uh, did, did you guys ever think about the fact in your science fiction, your hard science, about how would you go and introduce capitalism to space aliens if you ever meet any? I think it was uh, sort of generally unthought of. Like I said, the we tended to view space in in the paradigm of either you know this utopian view like Star Trek or a dystopian view like you know Star Wars partly is. But we didn't really see it as uh, in a political light in the sense of capitalism versus communism. Now, maybe there are some stories that did, um, but it it was just always put aside. Warhammer and Battletech forever. Warhammer and Battletech forever. See, science fiction here was for escapism and viewing the, you know, what what the human future could be. It was not propagandized or anything like that. It it just was sci-fi. And when you get into situations and i would say like arthur c clark's book 2010 you have the russians and the and the americans cooperating when they go into space but being affected by deteriorating conditions back at home between the soviet union and the us and it was just seen sort of that way that it, you know it was it try to cooperate you know try to get past the problems of this planet because when you leave this planet behind you should leave the baggage behind you know and that was, I think, the general sense of it all. Now, I'm sure there are stories out there where it was much different. But fundamentally, it was uh, it was a positive thing with a hope, you know. I mean, what is sci-fi if it doesn't give you some kind of hope, you know, especially during dark times like the, those days were. At least until Gorbachev. Gorbachev changed everything. Then it started to stop. Point finger at the American. He wants hope to be pointed at him. Laugh at the American. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, that's one thing that, I, I mean, we actually did have at one point during those days comedians that would act Russian, you know, and things like that. Um, so we did poke fun at the Russians, but fundamentally it was seen that the Soviet Union was the arch rival, you know, and we were all just uh, basically hoping that, you know, we would not get into a conflict because it would mean the end of the world. You know, it's, it still would. It still would. And it still would. Yeah. It really worries me that uh, that Lavrov. The Minister yep. of Lies, mm-hmm. yeah. I call him that. He he literally told today earlier that uh that the World War Three is still possible. Yeah. Because it's just my grandfathers were conscripted on different sides of World War Two, you know. Right. Because uh Stalin occupied us and then one of my grandfathers was conscripted for the Red Army, and then Nazis came and my other grandfather was conscripted for that, because they didn't care, they just conscripted everyone and and they always, after the war, they came together and they were both wounded in the war and they said that, you know, the most important part is that we will actually live in peace. And, and I have to give you that. Maybe Star Trek has a point. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. At, at this point, I don't really see us exploring space, no matter our ideology or whatever, if we don't cooperate, really, as, 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 as a species. Well, we have to. We have to. Uh, when we go into space, we have to be the human species, you know? And that's our future. That's how we build a multi-planetary species. That's how we survive and hedge our bet against asteroid impacts and wars and things like that. You are missing the point. I mean, if we are not united, how are we going to kill all the Xenos come? That's right. If we run across an alien civilization in our star system with us, it's got to go. Spoken like a true man of the god emperor of mankind. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, that's the other thing is what, what happens if what, what, what would the Soviets have done if the, we found aliens and found out they were imperialists and they had a czar? Oh, they would hid from all of us. The thing is, the Soviet levels of secrecy are so ridiculous that uh, when I started out the show on 2014, I made an episode about Chernobyl. I really went through all the facts that happened there and everything. And then when the Chernobyl show came out, I had to review the show because people asked me to. And then I looked through all the historical inaccuracies, of which there weren't many. There were, it was really well done. But after that, some documents were kind of made unsecretified. I'm sorry, my English, my English not very good today. Um, but Declassified. Yes, yeah, sorry, that, that word. Yes, thank you. Uh, and then I made another episode, and a lot of these things have happened. And uh, a lot of this stuff, even World War II stuff, is still still top secret, which I don't have access to. And uh, I went through a document explaining KGB vetting procedures, because I literally bribed the person. And all of this was just super, super weird. The thing is that I really don't imagine, you know, Soviets portrayed all of this us going to space and cooperating. But over here in the Soviet Union, you know, on the ground, everyone knew that was it would be just, you know, KGB going to space and then lying, lying to the rest of us. That's why there are actually alien conspiracies that the Soviet Union actually made contact with the aliens. Oh, we have the, the same. Uh, there are people that think that the U.S. government um, has maintained contact with them. My question on all of that is how? Because how do you communicate with an alien? You have nothing in common with it, you know, linguistically or anything like that. And that's one thing that bothers me about the accounts is that they're always hominids. You know, they always look like us. And this is what I give you the answer, because the Soviets had an answer for this. They treated Marxism, scientific Marxism, as laws of physics. So they thought that Marxism and Marxist theories about how societies developed were the same as laws of physics. They weren't theories. They were ironclad facts of STEM, which meant that Every society that would go to space and every advanced civilization that would go to space would, by definition, be Marxist and communist. Therefore, even if they wouldn't call it Marxism because they would be aliens, they would still communicate with the language of the proletariat, obviously. <laughs> but <laughs> you have to, I mean, all right, say you got an alien that communicates chemically, you know. Doesn't even talk, doesn't even... Shut up, like chemistry just... obeys the laws of scientific <laughs> Marxism. <laughs> I love it. No, seriously, that, that was the ideology. I mean, the, everything went through the lens of the fact that... Uh, and this is the weirdest part that I try to explain to people. Imagine if you had, like, science, but all the science that you made would have to go strictly through this lens of Hegelian dialectics, scientific Marxism, and utter materialism, which basically explains everything that a society does 
through the lens of strictly means of production type of thing. Everything. And this is the law of nature, the same as quantum mechanics says. So. And see, that's going to skew it, though, because you, you don't, whenever you start applying filters, you, you don't necessarily arrive at truth. What do you mean, the truth, comrade? See, that's the thing, is that <laughs> it, it, it's hard to, um, well, look, I think most people in the Soviet Union knew they were being lied to, right? But you just couldn't, you couldn't say it, or else you, you know. This is the thing which is hard to explain to people, that uh, you didn't worry about the secret police watching you that much. You worried about your neighbors right to get a port on you. Right. This is why what really stunned me when I went to the United States is the fact that, for example, I'll tell you a little thing. When you stand in the queue, on a line. I'm sorry, learn British English at school. Um, when you stand in line, you talk to each other about random stuff. You, you do small talk. We don't have a concept of small talk. We don't. This is what, what I also explain to my Latvian listeners and my Eastern European audience, the fact that if you go to the New World, it is a new world. For actually culturally, for us, you might as well be aliens, since you're all extroverted. You're naturally extroverted people. And if I had to give you some sort of stats, you'd get bonus charisma or something. Because over here in Latvia, it is impolite to smile on the street. And for us, running gag was the fact that, oh, COVID now imposes two meters distance between us. So that means we have to go closer to each other or something. For us, we don't speak in cues, even publicly talking to other person, holding hands is impolite. You know, you could also make the argument, though, that a lot of the social niceties here in the U.S. are fake. You just do it to put the other person at ease, you know, or something like that. Small talk, however, is real. Um, it's just, you just get to talking to someone and that's always how it's been. But we didn't have to worry about anything, you know? I mean, I can say anything I want, you know, I can, I can attack the president if, you know, or whatever, you know? Um, I have to quote that joke over here. I mean, uh, a Soviet man and uh, an American man argues about which country is freer. An American man states, well, I can walk into the White House and, and smash my hands uh, on, the, on the table and say, Mr. Reagan, I don't like how you run the United States of America. And the Soviet man responds, well, pff, I don't care about that. I can go to Gorbachev, general secretary, right in the Kremlin, smash my hands on the table and yell, Mr. Gorbachev, I don't like how Reagan runs America. <laughs> well, that yeah, that essentially that, that's it. See, the thing is, the pressures here, though, aren't from the government or anything like that. They can't do anything. The laws prevent, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that prevents them from um, doing something like that. But the narratives happen privately. So if you watch our media, you'll see skews, you know, left, right skews very obvious ones and so that's where the propaganda happens here is privately in private companies that control um, the media and basically tell people how to think that way and that has nothing to do with the government the government would just as soon not have that happen hello there and thanks for listening to another episode of the eastern border Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. 
You can donate directly from their webpage comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters, every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military. Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. But switching this around, if you think of, if you turn this to, again to aliens, because we have to speak about aliens. And again, I'm really sorry, guys, because Aretz couldn't make it because he's busy today. Very sorry about that. But if you think about aliens, if I would have to explain UAPs by aliens, I would rather translate them to random drunk alien teenagers doing stupid stuff. I mean, if we would ever have a first contact, why would it ever come from an alien government, even if they have a government? I mean, it could be alien ISIS. It could be alien drunk teenagers. And do we have a method of differentiating between the two? There is a, a one bottom, you know, a common denominator, a bottom line. Any presence of an alien civilization, no matter its motives, is the de facto end of life as we know it here on Earth. Because no matter how you cut it, any presence of such a thing is bad. Because by virtue of its superior technology, if it's crossed, you know, space time to get here, interstellar space, it's way more advanced than we are. And if it's here, it's in control and can correct us or do anything. And that's what I fear about that is that I think people want the UAP to be of alien origin. And that leads to wishful thinking. But no, you don't, because it immediately means that the solution to the Fermi paradox is the most scary one. It's the zoo hypothesis. We are not in control. I firmly believe in two things. One, I, I really wish the SCP Foundation to be real. Now, what is that? You don't know the SCP Foundation? Hmm. You are a sci-fi author and you do not know the SCP Go and fix yourself. No, 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 no. Just get what, what is it in reference to? Because I haven't read everything in sci-fi. SCP Foundation started out as a creepypasta, but it's basically turned out as this... Uh, basically take X-Files, right? Mm -hmm. But turn the X-Files Foundation into a basically super-powered organization that contains paranormal threats. Oh, this type of thing. It's really good. It's really good. They started this whole thing. It was It's pretty old at this point. But SCP Foundation is, it's a wiki at this point with tons of entries. It's like they have threat levels and they're kind of like, how do you contain this threat? They're really good. They have a lot of studies. It's, it's a great place where beginning sci-fi authors now start these days. The thing is that um, if we talk about hard science here, I do believe that collapse of the Soviet Union, as much as it did harm, you know, politically for all of us, the collapse really freed a bunch of nations. But scientifically, I made a bunch of episodes on my show about the Soviet MiGs and the Soviet tanks and the Soviet Ekranoplans. Ekranoplan is best, of course. That was the uh, ground effect vehicle. Yeah. Yes, yes, that thing. And the Caspian Sea monster, yeah. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of projects that the Soviets really wanted to achieve. And I truly believe that if Soviet Union would have would have stayed and if Russian government would have just, you know, allowed this to continue in some way or form. And that's one rock that I can throw to the Western capitalists because uh, 
if the West would have given a bit of funding to at least some of the Soviet projects, such as actually a Venus mission to check out if there's life on Venus in the atmosphere, yeah, we could have found out about that phosphine a bit earlier if it exists there. Well, that the, one of the points of evidence um, towards that is a detection from Venera, uh, one of the Venera probes. The Russians had magnificent luck with Venus. Didn't have very much luck with Mars, but exploring Venus, they had fantastic luck. Let me tell you something about the Venus probe, the Venera landers, the things you, you Americans have never heard about. Do you know why that probe lasted there for 15 minutes as long as it did? Good electronics, robust. No, cast iron. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was made out of cast iron. Like it, it works. It was. It was the Soviets literally. They didn't uh, study about the word fuck around. They encased the whole Veneta lander. It was basically a ball of cast iron. It was just dropped there straight up. Blamo. The thing is, it worked, and it worked. I mean, that characterizes a lot of Soviet era technology. If it works, you know, it works. We made the Soviets warned us about this. We made a very, very delicate space shuttle, foam tiles and everything. And they warned us. They're like, you're overcooking the turkey. You know, those that could be dangerous. And um, it turned out it was. I haven't eaten turkey in my life. Just say it. You don't have turkeys in Latvia? No, we don't. Oh, you need them. We'll rephrase it. Uh, don't overslice the tomato. But yeah, they, they actually did. They warned us. And you remember uh, the Soviet space program had its own space shuttle, Buran. And um, only launched once remotely. But about the Buran, in my possession, have a uh, motherboard plate from Buran. Because when Vice went to the Buran and took pictures, some of my friends went to Buran, which they found in the hangar, and stole the fucking motherboards from it. Ouch! It's it's not ouch. It is illegal as fuck. Well, but, uh, it's illegal. But also the, the, the fact that what happened to Biron, you know, with the collapse of the uh, hangar was a tragedy. I mean, that was that thing was number one. It was historic because it's Soviet space history. But also the Soviets spent a lot of money developing that, you know, and just to have it, you know, destroyed in a collapse is terrible. By the way, do you know what Buran means? What does it translate to? No, I don't. I used to, I think, at one time. It's a snowstorm, a blizzard. That's right. Yeah, blizzard. Um, and there were others. There were unfinished ones. There was sort of like a little fleet, and some of those still exist. But Buran itself, which was the one that was flown, was uh, destroyed. The thing is that, that all of this Soviet tech, the worst part of it was that uh, we got all this amazing Soviet technology in, in space and in military. Soviets made a laser pistol. The cosmonauts were supposed to be given laser pistols in case of a massive war, which they could shoot satellites with a pistol. That was the plan. Yeah, we were, we were looking at the same thing called Star Wars, and it was par particle beams from satellites. Soviets made all this army shit, but they couldn't couldn't provide all of us with food. That's why the Soviet Union collapsed. Well, that's, you know, that, that was the sad thing, you know. Um, and that was a, a sad effect of the Cold War is that it was very expensive on both sides. I mean, we still owe tons of money <laughs> from, you know, equipment in the 1980s, building a 600-ship Navy and all the things that we did. We still owe that money. We run a deficit permanently. You know, we, we take on more debt each year as a country. So it was a sad affair because I don't really see why there had to be any rivalry at all, you know, because both sides... The Soviet Union and the U.S. were rational enough 
they were worried about war, but they were rational. You know, nobody wanted to die. Nobody wanted to end the world. So I wish it would have been that the Cold War had not happened and that we could have uh, sort of avoided that. But it was also, you know, we never did really get along with Stalin very well. And I, that's what kicked it off, I think. I would like to say no one got really well along with Stalin, but the correct way to how to phrase it would be Stalin really didn't get along with anyone. No, he didn't. And he had a certain way with people. Well, yes. He made people go away. Yeah, he purged them. And the, the weird thing about Joseph Stalin is he wasn't really even ethnically a Russian. He was a Georgian, as I recall, wasn't he? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, you're talking about Mr. Whose actual surname was Jugashvili. Yeah, Stalin means man of steel, doesn't it? Something like that. Yep. That his... I have a whole episode series about this. Yeah. He, he also used to rob banks. Stalin's a fascinating figure. If you're a D&D fan, then... Uh, if you look at the spectrum, then you can portray Hitler as chaotic evil, but Stalin is lawful evil. Yeah. Stalin is the epitome of lawful evil, because if you want to look at someone who's utterly committed to bureaucracy and, and rules and everything, and yet is utterly corrupt and evil, then that's Stalin for you. Straight up. You have to admire him in a way. In a way, you kind of have to, because he's the epitome of basically the American dream, if you think about it. I mean... Poor man, dog going his own way, robbing banks, going into Western adventures, ending up running the most powerful country on the planet. Because during Stalin's era, specifically Stalin's era, I think the Soviet Union was in front of the United States. The, the USA overtook the Soviet Union in later years of the Cold War. But up until Stalin's death from about 1949, for those four years, late Stalinist era, I think Soviet Union could have beaten the, the USA. And it might, maybe so. Well, I mean, we were exhausted from World War II, but we had a lot of equipment. The thing is, I think, though, that what we should have done is, is remembered that we were allies during the war, you know, collectively defeated the, the Nazi threat. And I think if we could have just kept talking after the war and not allowed things to go so icy, we could have gotten past it and... All right, well, let's let's celebrate the victory of World War II each year together. Yeah. And we did that for a while. I mean, I, there were actually U.S. soldiers marching in Red Square. But that's a bit of a problem when you're allied with a... If the USSR would have stayed in, like, the borders, which before the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, yep. you know, if they hadn't taken the Baltics and... Right, right, oh, right. Messy stuff. I mean... Messy stuff, and it, it, it resulted in the, the Cold War, you know. And this is like the last question that I would like to ask you here on, on record, at least. I mean, we've spoken a lot about history here, and I'm really glad that I got to talk to you about this because I'm a huge fan of yours. And I hope that uh, at least someone, you know, from, from your show also will try to listen to some other episode of mine. But um, what makes us think that any aliens that we might find that uh, would kind of uh, be intelligent enough wouldn't have their own Cold Wars? Well, they could. Well, one thing that sort of seeds in the underbelly of what I do is the idea that to go to space at all, you need to have some sort, some brand of aggressive tendency, boldness and things like that. And that doesn't really bode well for the idea of an alien civilization that's peaceful. They may not be. You turn this around and say they're worse than us, right? So say the first technical signature we see is a huge war, you know, signs of a huge war in space so it could be just as easily be that aliens aren't friendly and they're worse than us you know and that the moment they see us they they attack or 
even worse than that is if it's a machine civilization where they've, you know, the bio biological component is long gone and it's just an artificially intelligent, super intelligent supercomputer that is bent on its own survival. And if you get in its way, you're gone. And it may purge, like in the Mass Effect universe, um, it may purge all life in the galaxy, in which case it's a supervillain. You know, it's worse than anything imaginable. I've played enough Stellaris to know what you're talking about. Right. So there's there's those ideas, too, that, that we might actually be better than we think we are compared to alien civilizations. But that said, we're still here. Nothing has destroyed us. So, and it's had, you know, billions of years to purge life on earth before it ever even got to a civilization so since that hasn't happened that at least suggests that maybe things aren't so bad it's also possible too that there's no one else in the in the galaxy and we're here alone you know what really motivates me in this case the fact that um, there's a bunch of weird studies on reddit maybe called humanity fuck yeah and if you think about it we poison ourselves we poison our atmosphere. We kill ourselves on the daily basis. We uh, we drink poison for fun, okay? So if you think about it, there's something very Soviet in this. If some alien comes and invades us, let them come to my parents' house in Siberia. I will welcome them in Archangel. Let the winter over there in minus 50. Mm -hmm. It's going to be fun. <laughs> Unless it's from a very cold planet. Well, then we will drink vodka and, and, and eat shashlik. What's the problem? <laughs> now, the thing is that, um, that I've also told people from Supernatural podcasts on all this situation, we like to think about aliens and sometimes ghosts and paranormal situations. But uh, if you look at our history, there was a lot of people who are like, oh, no, aliens abducted me and everything. But if you put all the paranormal unexplained threats to humankind together, they still haven't killed as many people as Hitler or Stalin did. In one go. Oh no, no, no! They living people are much worse. Definitely, that's the reality of it. Um, I wish such people didn't exist. Uh, in a way, maybe. I think. I think it's kind of like stepping stones. Maybe it's kind of a challenge that we as civilizations have to go through. But you have to figure this one out because. Well, you have to figure it out because if you don't figure it out, you don't survive it. Yeah, because. One thing that I'm really afraid of is that I'm much more open to the idea of microbial universe. And by the way, uh, this comes from my girlfriend. She's a biologist. And I don't know what she's talking about here because I'm, I'm not a biologist. But she says, <clears throat> this is a question I'm re literally reading from, from my phone now. Do you think life on Europa would be more related to archaea or bacteria? I say archaea. Um, I think it would be the simplest, simplest life. Can you please explain to me and to my listeners what is Archaea asking for a friend? Uh, Archaea, it's the earliest, simplest form of, of life on Earth. It's where it starts. You know, it's where life starts. It starts with the very simplest uh, microbe, and then it gets more complex as evolution takes hold. And then it becomes you know, a bacteria, and you get um, the leap from prokaryotic life to eukaryotic life, where you get an energy source in the cell that wasn't present before, which enables more evolution. My life about biology stuff comes from you and Isaac Arthur. Then I show it to, to my girlfriend, and then she explains this stuff to me. I understood physics, and I understood chemistry. Biology was always bizarre to me, and uh, it, it took me 30 years of life to understand that there is more than one mitochondria in a cell. Right. I'm dumb in the city. That's the thing. So I think that any analog of Earth life that forms in an ice shell moon, at Lake Enceladus or Europa, 
probably starts in a similar way. I mean, you can't assume maybe there are other paths. Maybe we'll find something we, we've never seen before that isn't common with Earth life. But just going on our sampling of one, I would expect the life there to be very similar to, to ours in that it starts very simple and then maybe it got more complex later. And maybe, just maybe, it could be really complex and there's bioluminescent and jellyfish and sharks and, you know, analogs of those things in these oceans. But we really don't know. I mean, at this point, we know nothing. You know, we just know that there's water there. So uh, with coming missions, especially to Enceladus, which is what that video was about, that has a really good chance of answering the question because if you've got frozen microbes there, we'll see them and then we know. What'll be fun is to determine the genetics of it and sequence the genome, which is part of that mission, because then it'll tell you if it's a truly unique second genesis of life in the solar system or if it's somehow related and that um, it it is a a cousin through panspermia of microbial life on Earth. And we might even be able to determine which came first. If the Enceladus life or Europa life looks genetically a certain way, we can sort of reconstruct that and say, this is earlier, which would mean that um, we actually are originally from those bodies, one of those bodies. We could be from Europa as, you know, life on Earth. My favorite idea that you've postulated on the show is about the shadow biosphere. Mm -hmm. I really like that idea because, by the way, Agi, if you're listening to this, this is for you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but the shadow biosphere is something that really fascinates me as mm -hmm. about the desert varnish on, on the alien moons and whatever. What really turns me off this thing is that how alien would it have to be for us to have not noticed all of this? For example, I can quote you, there was a biologist that told us that life on Earth is basically nematodes. You, if you just take everything out off, you would have nematodes everywhere. This shadow biosphere looks like something that I wish to want to believe in, just like string theory, but it doesn't seem to be realistic at all. And, and yet you have had people on the show way more educated than me because, you know, I'm, I'm just a historian, not a STEM person at all. So why do so many people get into this idea? Because from my shallow perspective, it seems like very unrealistic that we haven't noticed it yet. Well, there's a couple of ways to think about that. The shadow biosphere, when we look at microbes and study them, there's certain methods and those methods are tailored towards finding actual, you know, earth life as we know it. It's not really tailored to find something else, you know. And the other problem is that we don't know very much at all about the microbial world. I mean, we find new species of microbe constantly. They're everywhere. You find them on the ocean floor and they only exist there. And, you, you know, it takes forever to find them. So it could be missed that way. But there's a problem. And the problem is that any second genesis of life on Earth immediately has to contend with the first genesis that we descend from. Maybe the reason that we don't see shadow biospheres and we don't see second occurrences of life on Earth is because it immediately gets eaten. <laughs> as soon as it shows up, it gets eaten. And that's why we don't see it. And we can't prove that that's, never, you know, that's not happening. And it could be that life is arising on this planet constantly and it just gets eaten, and, you know, by the pre-existent life. And that's the rule of the universe is that if you're first, you survive. If you're second, you don't. One of the things that I really wanted to ask you, because I watch a lot of paranormal YouTube channels, specifically about UFOs, because that's my hobby. I watch the ancient aliens ones. 
By the way, the, one of the recent Ancient Aliens videos was about how uh, Putin is a lizard person and how he started this war in Ukraine to basically uh, dominate human race, which is just, I wish, I, if lizard people would exist, I would vote for them, definitely. I think that's actually been said of every Western leader as well, as by, by some some conspiracy theorists, they think they're all lizard people and they go looking for definitely you know pictures of them where their eyes are actually reverting to slits and <laughs> that's the Queen of England. <laughs> um, I don't think that they're lizard people, but yeah, I've, I've been wrong before. I mean, of course, they are all uh, fungi. Fungi? Fungi? Oh, I don't Evil know. mushrooms. Evil yes. mushrooms, yes. Right, evil mushrooms. <laughs> Soviet Union anthem playing in the background, evil mushrooms marching somehow. I don't know how they march with their mycelium. Isn't the old Soviet anthem now the Russian anthem? Yes, and Putin made it so... Changed the lyrics? They changed the lyrics, but only for, for a few things. I mean, in general, um, yeah, to, to wrap this up, really, um, there's a lot of things that we you know, don't know about the outer space and, and there's a lot of things that we need to conquer in a way and uh, move forward as a civilization. And I believe that these wars are just holding us back. Oh, yeah. I'll unequivocally say it. I am anti-war. No more war. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what? I'm 33 years old. I was, I was still born in the USSR. So, you know, you're literally talking to a person who was a citizen of the Soviet Union. And imagine this, it's 2022, we're living in the future, and I, have, I can record this episode with someone in the United States of America. Imagine this in 1986. It would have been crazy if it had. Wouldn't happen. Yeah, it would def- definitely not happen. Um, phone calls were bad enough, you know. So, so we're making some progress here. So I, I wish to end this on the positive note that, uh, hey, no matter how bad it seems, we can just banter because I don't know where this went. But um, two things, though. One, advertise your book. And please start shipping to Latvia. Amazon? Amazon doesn't ship to Latvia. Oh, Amazon wants me to pay triple the price of your book for the shipping. Oh. Um, yeah, well, here's the problem. I'm working on a way to offer signed books. People get asking me for signed books. And international shipping in the U.S. has gotten just silly expensive. And I just don't know how to fix this. Um, if I could, I'd actually have it translated into Latvian and have it offered, you know, domestically there, you know. The only person who can translate it to Latvian at this point is, well, me and my friends. But send me a PDF file and I'll see what I can do. I, I, I can turn it into a Latvian audiobook at least, or a Russian audiobook. I can, I, I'm probably going to translate it to Russian. Yeah, email me and I'll, I'll, I'll send you a PDF. Um, I'll send you both, both books, actually. I really want to read something that you have created because I can't legally right now. And uh, no one has pirated it yet as well, so I can't even pirate it. I am, uh, I am actually a bigger author in China because of piracy than I am in, in the U.S. And finally, we really hope that this banter turned into something useful. I, at least I do. I don't know about John. He's the person that says live for unknown reasons. Uh, please explain how that started even, and then, then do your classical ending, because that's amazing. But do explain how it started, because it's amazing. How that started was, all right, I'm somewhat of a silly person. I believe, incidentally, to go back to what you said first, I believe the internet is key to world peace. Because if you can get people dialoguing and doing what we're doing right now, it brings the world closer together through understanding, right? So what we all need to be doing is gaming, and, you know, doing all these things on the internet and dialoguing and speaking. And eventually that defeats the whole rivalry. 
you know, that people have, you know, people get to know each other. And I think that's ultimately going to be what makes it impossible for governments to go to war is that dialogue. That said, um, the live came from um, me just being playful with the audience. I always end on a, on a joke, usually on my original channel. And I thought, well, if I do something weird with my speech at the end, who's going to notice? And it turns out everybody noticed. And I'm like, wow, people are watching my entire video all the way to the end just so they can hear how I'm going to say a word. And I just think it's funny. Um, Wait, the, the advanced dolphins that are going to rise up and, and kill us all is a joke? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, the, the, what was the one from last week that I did? I, I forget now, but um, the I think it was the the Enceladus space shark that takes out the the probe. Yes, yes, the the, the space shark takes out the probe. I mean, so it's all it's all ultimately just my weird quirky humor. Um, you have to finish this one with with your live, but uh, let me start this. <clears throat> and to finish this one off, we obviously need the XCOM. XCOM is clearly what we need to protect us from uh, the evil space Soviets, which are going to come and destroy the planet on, upon which we uh, live, sort of. <laughs> do you want me to give my outro? My full outro? Yeah, sure. I can do it. Here we go. Thanks for listening. I am futurist and science fiction author John Michael Godier, currently on the Eastern Border Podcast. And be sure to check out my books at your favorite online book retailer and subscribe to my channels for regular in-depth explorations into the interesting, weird, and unknown aspects of this amazing universe in which we live. Great, comrade. And now go back to your cell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go back to my cell. <laughs> ah. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.